This is the Mobile Tech Podcast, brought to you by worldpodcasts.com. Now here's your host, Tank Girl, Miriam Joie. Brought to you by Audible. Stay tuned for a special offer at the end of the show. Hi, and welcome to the Mobile Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Jouar, and today is Friday, March 18th, 2022, and I have the excellent David Ruddock back in the saddle here with me. Hi, David. How are you? Hey, Miriam. I'm doing pretty good. Great. So let's talk about the ID Buzz some more, because I finally got my hands on it. And then I kind of want to gauge your thoughts on quarter one smartphone land, but mostly like the high-end stuff, because I'm sure you've followed MWC, you know, for your new job, I'm sure you've got to be in touch with what's going on out there. So where are we at really is what I want to know. I mean, I think that 2022 is proving to be a, I wouldn't say a dud of a year for the smartphone, but I think we're entering more of a tick and talk cycle again, where you see, okay, you know, we have our iterative upgrades one year, you know, and then we have our bigger upgrades the next I think that what you see with Samsung so far this year, again, very iterative upgrades. The phones themselves actually seem to have regressed in a couple of ways. In some ways, yeah. Yeah, which is interesting. Um, But, you know, we do see that generationally. And I think there are some silicon challenges that are um, making themselves known this year. For sure. And I think another thing we know that's kind of happening in the background of all this is that Android is undergoing a major overhaul with Android 13. Um, Qualcomm is likely doing some rejiggering architecturally as it integrates, um, I forget the name of the company they acquired, uh, but the company they plan to use to make their own custom chip core designs once again. Yeah. But uh, anyway, with those two things happening in the background, it's hard to really see anything that would come out this year until maybe the very end of the year closer to pixel launch time. And even then that will kind of be a half step because most phones won't have that version of the OS until next year. And we'll see, we'll see a new innovation cycle. I don't think we'll see a custom core from Qualcomm next year, but I do think that what Google's done with Android 13, Android 12 L and a lot of that platform level stuff is going to give manufacturers a chance to rethink how their phones look feel, and how they leverage certain global Android settings for things like split screen and multitasking, and a lot of the other kind of cool stuff that Google's introducing for these new kind of form factors. For sure. So, you know, before we jump in more into your thoughts on the flagships so far, because I have some thoughts as well, the ID Buzz was in Austin, Texas, and I flew there for South by Southwest. And I got to have like an exclusive one hour. Well, not exclusive. There's other media who did too, but I'm one of the few tech and or car journalists to get an hour uh, for ride along. A lot of the car and tech, well, actually very few tech journalists got their hands on it, but a lot of car journalists got their hands on it in advance of the March 9th announcement. And they got it in uh, in a warehouse, in a static display somewhere in Southern Cal. And so they didn't get to write in it. So that's kind of my edge is I got to write in it. And I've driven the ID4 all-wheel drive. So I have a kind of an idea of what that, um, you know, MEB platform is that they're using. And um, so my story for TechRadar is going to be coming out tomorrow. I will link to that in the show notes because by the time the podcast is published, it'll be up. But you can also check out my YouTube video and um, it's got a basically a seven minute, like me walking around, showing you around and showing you the the thing. Look, my takeaway is, yeah, I think Volkswagen's got the head on their hands. I mean, 
is nothing too spectacular in terms of EV, but for a van, it's it's tremendous, right? Like we're we're looking at a van that's so much more quiet, handles so much better, and moves so much faster than anything that we've ever experienced. If we're if you've ever been in any kind of Volkswagen van or any kind of van, really, overall, right? So, and then it's huge inside and tiny outside. It's the length of a Model 3 in short wheelbase version, you know? Because yeah. you get, like, there's no need for machinery in there. Like, everything is, it's a skateboard with two motors. Well, in this case, there's only one in the back on the particular one I, I was in. And then a battery and then a bunch of little, you know, cooling and air conditioning stuff. And that's it. So inside is just this massive space. And a lot of it is carried over from the ID4 and ID3. If you've been inside ID4 and ID3, you've seen the steering wheel, you've seen the dashboard, not the dashboard, but the actual instrument display and the center display. It's basically much the same thing. It's got those stupid capacitive buttons that Volkswagen's putting all their cars, including the Mark 8 Golf R. I don't know if you've seen the reviews on that. Oh, uh, yeah. They've yeah. been brutal. Everybody hates it. And I was hoping that Volkswagen has received the feedback and would be like, well, for this product, because they changed a few things in there, like they've relocated the the gear selector from the side of the instrument panel down to the stock, kind of like a Tesla would have it. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe they're going to get rid of the capacitive controls for the lights and for all the things on the steering wheel and for all the things on the stereo that are not touchscreen things. And no, no, it's all there. It's basically part spin stuff. Like, you know, the, the mirror controls are also like that. There is like, they're capacitive. And so half the time you open your windows instead of adjusting your mirrors. It's really stupid. I am very anti-capacitive touch in cars. If Me it too. is not a screen. That Correct. is the only context where it's acceptable. I remember, so the first manufacturer to get bit by this was Honda. Um, I don't know if you drove any of their cars around 2013, I think. Yeah, when they had the volume, they removed the volume knob and they had the stupid capacitive adjustment. I remember that. Exactly. And customers and consumer reports rake them over the coals. And you know what? They relented and they went back to a knob. Yeah, now they it's, have a knob in the Civic. And I guarantee the reason they do this, some there is definitely that kind of futurism aspect to it, that sort of faux futurism, because there's nothing futuristic about capacitive touch. It's an ancient technology, nothing new under the sun there in that application. But for these manufacturers, this has to be a tremendous source of warranty claims because people spill things and buttons, they get stuff in there, they break them, they snap them off. They're a constant source probably of small dealer service charges. Um, I know, you know that I've used cars where I've had to go in to get buttons replaced because either something spilled in there or the contact has corroded, um, you know, and yeah. it just doesn't work right anymore. It is so much easier to engineer a capacitive solution. It's a single surface. You have a capacitive... Um, um, touch sensor in there, and they're totally shielded from the elements. That thing could potentially live forever um, if it's properly sealed effectively. Yeah. So for the manufacturers, the incentive is obvious. But in terms of consumer experience, it's such a degradation from you know the true button experience that I just don't think people are ever going to go for it. You know, I reviewed the Mercedes EQS, which is their top-of-the-line electric sedan. It's the S-class of EVs. Right. And it has freaking capacitive buttons on it in the middle in the center console there is a basically where the start stop button and the hazard buttons are there is an entire panel there that is capacitive but the whole thing clicks remember that blackberry phone where the entire screen clicked 
The Storm 2, right? I think in the original Storm, even. The original but, Storm, yeah. Yeah, you know what? That's that's what they're doing, and it's just as bad as it was then, and it's in a $120,000 car. Now, that's unacceptable to me. Now, Volkswagen, I've got to give them credit that the for the, the window and and you know, mirror controls, at least there's still that rotating knob to select left or right mirror, right? And and the, the buttons for the actual windows are still physically the, the ones that, you know, you pull and push on and click and the double detent for the auto stuff. But all the stuff around the the area there for selecting things like locking the windows from the rear seat passengers and, you know, power locking the doors, all that is capacitive and it's always confusing. You never know what state you're in. And there's LEDs, but at daytime, you can't see them. And then same with the light panel. Like, you know, old Volkswagen just had a rotating knob for the lights. You know, auto right. was the default, and then you get off, and then you have like on, and then low beam and high beam, whatever. Now it's all capacitive, and it's a pain. Of course, you don't uh. touch that. Usually, you leave it on auto. But here's the one that bothers me the most. It's the infotainment one. The volume is just like on that Civic, and it's right below the, the actual 12-inch display. So... Right in that strip there is things like the hazards and the volume and like, I'm like, why? Why did you do that? Like, it hasn't worked for Cadillac. It hasn't worked for Honda. It's not going to work for anyone. Remember Cadillac View? Oof. Oh, yeah. Uh, That was bad in the ATX or ATS or whatever it's called. Anyway, the point I'm making is that it's the steering wheel that's the worst because it has haptics on those. So... But it introduces a new state of operation, which the average person doesn't understand. You can do things with the controls by just touching them. And then you can do things by pressing. So it's different states. You see what I'm saying? Right. Now, you know, you're handling a steering wheel. You're going to touch stuff randomly, right? Of course. Yeah. Well, you can see where this is going in terms of, quote, unquote, a repair or maintenance claims. Because people don't understand how this works. And guess what else is like that? The EQS steering wheel. (laughs) <laughs> on a $120,000 car for people who are generally kind of older fashioned you have a capacitive setup where if you just swipe up and down on the volume slider it changes the volume but if you click on it and swipe up and down it does something else and you feel the click because it's haptic so it's kind of like force touch on the iPhone the thing about that is with haptic feet I think haptic feedback should be generally disallowed in a vehicle application for UX because you cannot control for road vibration completely. 100%. And in that sense, nothing on a steering wheel, especially if a steering wheel is supposed to give the driver any feedback whatsoever, you can't trust the haptics. You cannot trust that that feedback is going to be relayed consistently. And so that's, to me, just like it's, it's creating a problem where none existed. For me, what does work is the vibration I get when uh, for, for lane uh, for getting out of my lane, which I have set up on my Tesla. So it just right. warns me, and it vibrates the whole wheel, and you can really tell. Like there's well, no that's confusion. using the uh, that's using the electric motor and the steering column, yeah, right? Like uh, yeah, yeah. you know, you're getting quite a bit of feedback there. Yeah. If those and it's, buttons it's use great. the electric motor it, and the column. That'd be, you know, uh, it basically yeah. emulates the rumble strips without having the rumble strips, which is pretty cool. Right. I'm actually driving a Volvo S90 right now that does the same thing. And uh, yeah, it's it, that to me is the best version of that experience. 100%. But back to the ID buzz. Do you have any questions? Are there things that you saw my video? Why, what stands out for you? What's the thing that makes you excited? Well, I, I think that there is a lot of criticism of these sort of lifestyle EVs right now, especially ones that go after these sort of like 
overnight or camping or like van life crowd because the idea is, oh, well, you're never going to get enough range. You're going to have to charge too much. How are you going to get way out there in the middle of nowhere? And I think those criticisms are valid, but I think they miss the mark in terms of the market for these cars, which right. are people who want this to be accessible. This is probably their third vehicle or fourth vehicle. It is not their second vehicle, let alone their first and only. It is something yeah. that they're adding a luxury for. And I think if Volkswagen can go after that market, I think they could be incredibly successful. There's so much nostalgia for that design that they've integrated there. People love it. It's one of the most friendly-looking vehicle fascias on the planet. It immediately says fun, happy. It's a marketer's dream. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 beautiful. And to me, it's like it's truly a beautiful, iconic design. And you cannot say that about most EVs. I think it is a good-looking car. So I'm curious in your ride along, you know, A, how fast were they letting it go? And B, um, you know, what was the overall kind of experience like? Did it feel like a finished vehicle? Yeah, this was a production car. Absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind. I, you know, I've reviewed cars for Tech Radar. I've had a chance now to kind of hone my, my experience on what is pre-production versus production. This is definitely production. The ones that we've seen with the camo were pre-production. But what they've shown us since March 9th is production. This is European model. So a few things here. You know, you talk about lifestyle vehicle. In Europe, they're marketing this as a people hauler, right? Wow. They're marketing this as a replacement for your SUV, right? So think about this. You're getting a vehicle the length of a Model 3 because in Europe, they're getting a short wheelbase version, right? Of course. And you're getting this with the same battery pack as the higher end battery pack in the ID4 and ID3, which is 82 kilowatt, 77 kilowatt usable. That means about 250 mile range with the rear wheel drive motor on the van because it's about 300 on the cars, which are a little lighter and have better aero. So we're looking at probably 250, you know, which isn't bad, which is fine. Because remember, unlike Tesla, a lot of the traditional car makers, their numbers are very accurate. In my reviews, I found like the EQS was actually conservative. I was getting almost 400 miles on that car, um, the rear wheel drive one. So, you know, it's like the EPA, you cannot go by the EPA. It's, oh, yeah. You know, I agree with that usual. for sure. I mean, with the with the range, my my thing is more that if you're talking about somebody who wants to go for a week-long kind of haul. Yeah, well, let me get to that because van. I have the answer for that for you. Because okay. you know, I'm coming at it from the RV side of things right. because I own a Volkswagen camper. And I'm looking at it from the U.S. market, which I'm going to jump into in yes. a second. But the European right now is a people mover and a cargo van. We're gonna never going to get the cargo van because of the chicken tax. Again, as I said in my video, Google it, folks. It's pretty well explained. Um, you know, is there even a market for a van that size that's a, you know, a cargo van in the U.S.? Yeah. I doubt it. The point is, though, that that's where they're marketing it, and they're going rear-wheel drive at first in Europe because, you know, range. And because 200 horsepower is enough. And that thing has a ton of torque, too. It's like sure. 250 or 200. Well, and it's instant. The power band and torque yeah. band are just flat. So, and, you know, you the know. guy floored it for me at one point. And, you know, I remember when I drove the ID4 all-wheel drive, thinking to myself, yeah, that's adequate power, you know, 0 to 16, 5 point something seconds or 4 point something. I'm fine because I'm coming from a Model 3 with the acceleration pack. So I'm at 0 to 60 in 3.6 seconds every day. And so I'm coming from it there and the ID4 felt fine all-wheel drive. But everybody had complained that the rear-wheel drive ID4 was kind of slow. And after the guy gunned it, as a passenger, I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is fine. So I think that's not going to be a concern. But here's the thing. This is all for Europe. In the US, we're getting only the long wheelbase version. 
and we're getting it as a people hauler or eventually a camper van, the California edition that they've been doing in Europe, continue to do with the other vans while we didn't get any love here. And that is exciting because there's more room in the skateboard now, which means that there's potentially a bigger battery pack coming, one, and two, an all-wheel drive version coming. So I have my sights set on pre-ordering the California version of this long wheelbase all-wheel drive with a bigger battery pack if it ever becomes available on that config. Because then we're looking at probably 300 miles with all-wheel drive and a zero to 60 time in a freaking van, camper van of, you know, four seconds, five seconds, right? Yeah, that would be uh, pretty incredible. And no car needs to go faster. No, but my point is I want one car to do it all. That way I can get rid of my Model 3, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically, that's kind of what I'm looking at. So we don't know the details on the US model yet. Th- that's going to be revealed next year. And right now, we have nothing other than a long wheelbase is coming to the US and very likely a camper version. They've been promising this forever. I don't think they're going to go back on that. People don't really need a people mover in the US. You know, I don't think people are going to abandon their SUVs for this thing, even if no. it's super iconic to get a seven, like a seven seat or three row minivan essentially right like i think that's not the market positioning no people in the u.s are not concerned about efficiency of passenger space 100 percent. but i have to say though once you experience the inside of that thing even as as a you know i'm a pretty big person you know as a fat american if you experience this you're going to be like i don't want to be in an suv anymore there's so much (laughs) more space so there there is a potential for the people mover version i don't want to dismiss it completely um that being said um It's so iconic. They've done so much good work. I will post more pictures on my Instagram soon. I've been posting little batches here and there. There is so many little uh, Easter eggs. Like, you know, those handles in the Volkswagen Beetle, those looped white leather handles, they have those. Like, (laughs) there is little things everywhere and it's just so well designed. The center console can be completely removed so you can walk between the front captain's chairs to the back. Um, You have, uh, there's seven USB-C ports that I counted, supposedly two more optionally in the center console. One of them by the rear view mirror mounting point on the windshield so you can attach a dash cam. See, this is, this makes me, when you describe this car and the way it's clearly been designed from a, like totally from scratch point of view, it feels to me like what we've seen from VW on electric until this point has been a half step. This seems much more like a completely executed vision. This is their thing. I feel like they were, they, you know, this MEB platform was designed for this and they're like, well, we need some, we need a hatchback ID3 and we need a, a small SUV, the ID4. You know, and let's test the waters and let's get the kinks out of the engineering with this. And here's another example as to why. The ID3 and ID4 right now do not support plug and charge unless there's a software update, which is coming, you know, and that's the ability to just like on a Tesla, you plug it into the charger and it negotiates. You have an account with Volkswagen, it automatically bills you, right? Right. Okay. Well, that doesn't exist on the current IDs unless you get the software update. Now this has it built in. Um, another thing, maximum charging speed on the ID3 and ID4 is a measly 135 kilowatt. Uh, yeah. And that's, you know, if, if you look at it, uh, the Tesla's max out at 250 right now. Some cars right. like the Ionic 5 go up to 350. That's not really fast. Well, this one goes up to 170. It's not great but it's 35 kilowatt more. So they're definitely tuning this platform, this MEB by, you know, learning from the experience of the ID3 and ID4 in the field and applying the changes to this platform, which I think is smart. 
I just wish they would apply the non-capacitive changes. But hey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Volkswagen, you know, I, I think that they're a company that is truly capable of innovative and thoughtful design. And they show that over and over. But they do tend to get in their own way sometimes. And they can be slow to move. And that, you know, is true of any big corporation, of course. But Volkswagen in particular, I get occasionally that vibe of Toyota from them where they are so stuck in a legacy way yeah. of thinking about certain things, and their their view of futurism is from, like, a decade ago. Um, the way they're looking at the future of things is quite an old version of the future, if that makes sense. Um, 100%. Yeah, and I, I wish that, you know, because the, the as especially in terms of exterior design, I love what they're doing. I think they are by far doing the most interesting stuff. Um, yeah. With electric, I think Hyundai would be my second choice there. Hyundai Kia in general. The EV6 is yeah. a phenomenally cool looking car. In person, way better than in photos. Like, I was kind of mad about it. Then I drove it. And I've driven the Ionic 5 as well. I love the Ionic 5 design right from the get-go. Because, you know, I'm like a old-school European hatchback person, yeah. right? <laughs> but the EV6, dude, wow, in person. That thing looks like, the, it looks like the future. It does. Yeah. And I think that's so cool because what we're having right now, we're, we're seeing a blend basically of a lot of people with disposable income now in their 40s and 50s um, who have that nostalgia for the 1980s and early 90s kind of vehicles and car makers are starting to play into that more. They're seeing that kind of, you know, like the values of cars from that era are skyrocketing. You know, we both look at Bring a Trailer. Like there's so much oh, nostalgia man. for that era now. I blame and I love them. that it's starting to- yeah. making this impossible dream impossible like they're right around the corner from my house here actually a block away i just want to knock at the door guys guys you ruined it for me i was gonna buy this and this and this and now i can't afford it anymore they've ruined it for all of us but you know i do think you see that kind of cultural shift happening in automakers now where they're like hey people are starting to appreciate those more boxy shapes the more aggressive aerodynamics um some of these sort of like I guess you could say Tron or Outrunner vibes um, in the styling of like the UI and things. So yeah. I love, I'm loving to see where automakers go with that because I think it's a real opportunity to differentiate on software and kind of lifestyle aesthetic because now you can, with materials, especially with batteries, you can shape a car in any way you want. Your freedom is unlimited. And this is the first example to me. Like this is the first example to me where they're like, look, this is, you were throwing out the rules, right? Like, I mean- right. Like you, when you sat in, like, look, watch my video, guys. When I sat in the passenger seat, in the front passenger seat, I could not reach half of the dashboard. <laughs> I was maxed out on the, on the seatbelt and, and my seat wasn't all the way back. There's so much room. You, I don't know where to start to explain to you how much room that car has. And, and it just, in everything's flat. There's nothing on the floor anywhere except the center console, which you can remove. It's just phenomenal. And, you know, Yes, they're using a lot of ID3 and ID4 stuff in there, but the infotainment system is okay. It's not a Tesla level quality, but they'll learn and they'll get there. And at least it's software upgradable and hopefully the computers are upgradable too. I've got a rule about EVs. I don't keep them more than three years. That's never happening because progress goes way too fast. Right. Yeah. You're in that early mobile phone stage with them where things like you're, yeah. you're, you're degrading your experience just by keeping something older. <laughs> yeah. Even if you have an older Model 3, like my original Model 3 from 2018, which I traded in for 2021, 
It's night and day. It's night and day. Even though the cars look the same under the hood, everything is updated and changed. They have a heat pump now. The computers are faster. You can feel the computers are faster. The computers are better at autopilot. Like it's just, everything is just better. And yes, you can upgrade the computers and the Teslas. It's designed that way. But do you want to spend that kind of money on a car? No. You know, no. You just lease another one and you're done. And so, you know, for me, that's kind of where I think we're going. And a lot of people are resisting that. And I think the industry in general, I had a hard time with that concept. But, you know, and you're saying, oh, you waste and recycling well it's all it's all built in like those tesla battery packs when they degrade past 80 percent, they can either get replaced under warranty which people sometimes might do if they keep the cars that long or turn into power walls like they're not thrown out they're recycled as 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 energy storage solutions those batteries are going to last another 10 years at least yeah so and the same with all that body work and structural aluminum it's all highly recyclable oh absolutely i mean how have you been to a car crusher place like everything is recycled they pick everything out of there and put it for sale and make a nice profit yeah anyway back to the id buzz i think that for me what stood out is they've made a design that's really fun modern but retro right it's modern it's not trying to be identical to the old one but it's taking cues from the old one and then it has all these easter eggs and the design inside is really nice it's two-tone as well i don't know how that white interior is gonna wear you know especially in a camper but i might buy a darker interior if there's an option personally but you know what whatever i think it's it's a fun car and I think it's going to open up a whole new gender. I really hope this is a turning point for the US where people look at people movers, you know, currently SUVs and CUVs and scratch their head and go, huh, maybe I can do something different. Like they look at the Ionic 5 and go, huh, maybe I should buy that instead because I don't know if you've seen the Ionic 5's interior, it's cavernous. Oh yeah. That thing is huge. It's really an SUV, right? I mean, a CUV. So like, I think... It's going to change people's perception to some extent. And hopefully it takes a bit of time, but just like Tesla has been slowly invading the North American market beyond California, there's a bunch of them in Austin. I saw quite a few of them in France, uh, in Germany when I was in Europe, uh, less in Spain, but they're everywhere. And people obviously want them. And so maybe this ID buzz will be the same for Volkswagen. And maybe it's the beginning of something. Maybe they're going to do that can they, can they do the dune buggy for us with the MEB platform? I want it so bad. <laughs> right. I, I think that's, you know, that's something that's interesting. And I talked with um, the two guys that run a company called Snap Automotive, which is an Android automotive software consultancy. And that is where they're really trying to get customers are these more kind of boutique EV platforms that are going, they believe are inevitable. Because as you modularize everything, these skateboards are... I mean, certainly there are innovations that are happening with them, but at the end of the day, the concept is relatively simple. You put a bunch of batteries inside a rigid, like, rectangular box. Um, You know, the way you pack them in and the batteries you use tend to be the really ways that they get differentiated. So once you have that basic platform, especially as lots of them start to enter the used or recirculating market, there's undoubtedly going to be kits um, and shops that start up doing basically total conversions and bodywork conversions that allow you to do all kinds of crazy things with these cars. And I believe we'll also see a boutique industry of EV hypercars. We'll see EV lifestyle vehicles, like, you know, kind of off the grid vehicles and buses and things like that. I'm sure that's going to happen. So maybe even with a company like Volkswagen, it might take them a long time to do this and to get that kind of level of sophistication. But in the meantime, 
I think that is probably where the tuner, quote unquote, world is going to go, is to these more customized, low production vehicles that might be more akin to a Morgan or an Ariel in terms of production numbers, but in terms of the markets they can target and the niches they can hit, I think they'll be able to do a lot more interesting stuff. Like, you know, they'll be able to take existing platforms like maybe, you know, something from Range Rover um, and create like a total conversion kit that turns it into a safari vehicle. Um, yeah. You know, I think that yeah. that kind of freedom is going to be open up a whole new world of car culture. Yeah. And so in terms of tech, I mean, this is, uh, you know, it has ADAS, it has something very similar to autopilot. I drove yeah. the uh, the ID4 with that and it's not quite as confidence inspiring as autopilot, but it's not bad. It's one of the better ones. So I, I want to say that it's going to improve. And I think the tech is there. It's got all the cameras and all the sensors. Um, again, for three or four years, you'll be fine. Uh, it's not going to let you watch Netflix on the big screen because <laughs> the, uh, you know, the old school manufacturers are freaking out about the legalities of that, even though it would only be enabled when you're stopped. I don't understand it. Every time I talk to an EV maker right now about why the hell don't you put apps on your screen for me when I'm charging and they're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, have you used an EV? Have you done right. a road trip in an EV? Like one of the things that makes the Tesla so cool is that I can watch YouTube or Netflix or Hulu or whatever the hell I want on the big screen while I'm charging. And it's free. I mean, other than my subscription to Hulu or Netflix and my $9. Yeah. And this is where you learn car manufacturers are not smartphone right. makers. <laughs> yeah. And I was going to say my $9 a month subscription to data with Tesla, which by the way is free for me right now because I'm grandfathered in. But for some people it's $9 a month, it's, which honestly is all you can eat data is not a bad deal. No, that's a great deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, look, I want to get back to phones, unfortunately, because we have another, <laughs> we're halfway God through damn here. it, phones. Yeah, I know. But you know what? Like you have a new job and I saw you post some cool stuff about um, this walkie-talkie slash radio used for emergency services and other, you know, radio-ish needs. Yeah. And it runs Android, but it's not the kind of Android we're used to. It only has a tiny little OLED display on it. Um, tell us a little bit about what you do, but more like what you can do with Android that's not phones. Yeah. Yeah, so this this item, this product, so you get a sense of it, it does look like a standard kind of Motorola form factor two-way walkie-talkie, minus um, any sort of visible antenna on the device. So handheld, it's black, big chunky plastic thing, all scuffed up. Something you would see either on a police officer or firefighters like front uniform or a paramedic on their belt perhaps, um, and that they would use to communicate with each other. So we're talking person-to-person um, -person communications, push-to-talk. So not the dispatch radio in the car necessarily. That might be a right, different right. tool, different network. The company that makes the actual device is called Seata. And so this is a specialty of theirs are these first responder uh, handsets that use cellular networks instead of the standard radio frequency bands that most emergency responders use. The reason for that is obvious. The range for cellular is much greater and the penetration across certain surfaces for cellular um, is obviously going to, you know, the waves for these short band radios are quite big. Um, yeah. So cellular can get in places where they cannot. So the quality Correct. of service can be guaranteed in a way that those kind of traditional radios can't. Now, why would you run Android on something that doesn't have a touchscreen, um, doesn't have any like system navigation buttons, really doesn't have an interface? Uh, this little OLED strip on the top is, I think, one inch wide and maybe 0.25 inches tall. Yeah, it's tall. basically like a, a, a fitness tracker thing. 
Right. Yeah, maybe yeah. a half inch tall. And so all it displays is the battery life, the channel you're on, and if you're trying to set it up, like it says, press to PTT to push to talk. So this device works over, um, can work over AT&T's FirstNet safety network, which right, is their dedicated band um, for first responders. And the reason it runs Android, though, so you may think, okay, why wouldn't you install like a little Linux, like real-time OS? On yeah, this exactly. Thing? That's yeah, something super instinct. lightweight, you know. You know yeah. yeah. Well, there are a number of really good reasons for that. Number one, if you're talking about a cellular device, Linux doesn't have a, like a full cellular stack open source. That doesn't really exist in the meaning. Yeah, that's sense. the biggest, one of the biggest problems with it. I mean, there are many, right. but... Like, if you're doing cellular on Linux, good luck. Yeah, it's a real challenge. The other side of that is that Linux mobile power management is at best hit or miss. You have to implement really well. You have to be very careful. Um, you have to really lock down and get a really good, like, lock on your use case. So, Siad, in this case, had chosen a Qualcomm processor, though. And so, obviously, because of the accessibility to the cellular operators, of course you would choose a Qualcomm part. It makes yeah, the most sense. Yeah, because they're going to approve it in a heartbeat, right? Exactly. It lowers your certification costs and all of that. But the reason you run Android on something like that, though, is that Android was designed from day one for a mobile use case. There's no other operating system in the world right now that you can get um, and put on another device where that's true, unless you, you know, want to go out and try to reverse engineer iOS. Like, it's just not possible. So Android, out of the box, is designed for anything that is small and has to be on a battery and talk over cellular networks. It just makes sense. And what you're able to do then is strip out pieces of that operating system that you don't necessarily need to off features you don't need. And Android is such a known quantity among developers and manufacturers now that customizing it's not really that big of a deal, not to say it's right, easy, right. but it makes it relatively straightforward. And you have a huge ecosystem of developers and developer tools, OEM partners, vendors, software vendors, everybody to work with you. And so just use Linux means where where do you start with all of that? Like, okay, first you got to find <laughs> how to do cellular. Then you got to find out how to do power management. Then you got to figure out, okay, how is an operator like AT&T going to certify a Linux device? Are they even familiar <laughs> yeah. enough? Like, how do we are you going to push module? software updates to it? Exactly. How are we going to push software updates? How are you going to support it? So like, you know, we can remote into these devices and like communicate with them live in the field. We could stream a log cat from them and debug them in the field if there was an issue like that. They can update the software in firmware on those devices through Esper's, you know, framework, our console and things. So they have tons of control over those devices. And crucially, they can update the software on them, which in this case is probably an APK. It's a core APK, um, probably a system level application. And they can deploy updates in the field fully remotely, just like if you were, you know, kind of conceptually, like if you were doing it through the Play Store, but through our own cloud. So at the same time, you could not build this device partnering with Google. Not no. really. No. You know, maybe Google... It's not really meant for that, I mean. No. In Android, you know, Google has a defined set of form factors that they think Android is good for. And that's totally correct. Like, you know, for a smartphone, you should use Google's Android if it's being used like a smartphone. Like, no other version of Android would make sense. For sure. Yeah. For something like this, Google just, you know... You're not getting any value out of the Play Store. You're not getting any value out of Gmail. Like you're not getting any value out of Chrome or YouTube or Netflix or Widevine certification even. Why do you mean I can't play Doom on that little OLED display? Oh, you probably could. We could probably make that happen. But, okay. <laughs> you know, I don't know how Seattle would feel about it. But, yeah, there, you know, every time I bring that up, you know, the first thing people say is, okay, but why wouldn't you just use a smaller operating system? And the answer is smaller is not better. Stop, stop thinking that way. Also, um, you can make Android pretty damn freaking small. Remember, you, you it's Linux-based originally, exactly. right? So Android is highly efficient. So, you know... 
Android is already designed for this from the ground up. It was meant to be used on these low power ARM processors. It can run on a potato. Like Android is so, you can run Android on, on an Arduino and that's not a powerful device at all. Like no. in this, yeah. So I, I think that the reaction people have, this idea that Android is this big, robust phone operating system. No, Android seems robust because it has so many APIs. It has such extensibility and so many platform features, but it doesn't mean you have to leverage them all. And it doesn't mean if you're not leveraging them, you're somehow wasting them. It just means you're tailoring to your use case. You know, there's another thing to mention before we jump into the rest of the phone stuff. And it's that, you know, in the old days, like back in the day when I worked at Pebble, the reason we chose an RTOS was because Android was too heavy to run on some of those microcontrollers. But, you know, that's like a decade ago. Like yeah. in a decade, the processing power and the cost has dropped so drastically. The right. other thing to keep in mind too is that, you know, these application processors, those SOCs that we are all using, right? They they are optimized now for the scheduling and the kind of, you know, pipelining of processing right. uh, that is that is standard in Android. So you're going to benefit immediately from a performance, both power management and speed and efficiency that you don't get with other OSs running on the same like Qualcomm chipset, right? Exactly. So yeah, I think it's also to me, just it's like a so, no-brainer. Yeah, you know? you know, you're using the Linux kernel, right? So you're getting all the benefits that come with that, which compared to a Windows kernel, like would be a huge performance uplift in terms of baseline yeah. processing capability. So yeah, there are tons of reasons to use Android. And, you know, there, there are good reasons to use like things like real-time OSs in certain applications because well, of sure. the degree of control it gives you. I mean, you truly have control over everything. If you have a closed system, I think it makes a lot more sense too. If you don't have to deploy you know, right. And you want super tight security. You want to be able to control everything, but that's what, that's what you've been doing at Esper. This is yeah. the kind of the evangelizing that you're doing. So there you go, folks, in case you're wondering what David was up to yeah. all this time. We're on walkie talkies. We're on restaurant kiosks. We're on forklifts. We're on like exercise bikes. We're on a climbing machine. You know, I was at FedEx yesterday picking up my package that, that barcode scanning phone looking yeah. thing is got out on Android. Oh, for sure. They all do. And it looks like a custom thing. It doesn't look like a phone in a case. It really probably, doesn't look like... Uh, it's probably made by either Zebra. Um, so Zebra is a big manufacturer of these uh, commercial Android handset devices. Or it could actually be, and you'd be, you'll be surprised here, is Olaphone. Um, Olaphone yeah, makes Olaphone, tons yeah, for of sure. com commercial devices. And then you have companies that make big cases that you put them in that like either hook it up to like a um, an IR scanner yeah, handheld or reader, whatever. Yeah, 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 exactly. There's that whole universe. I can't unsee things like that now. <laughs> Whenever I walk into <laughs> yeah, a store, you go, I'm like, that what's that, EOS? Yeah. Like, yeah, I guess totally. that an NCR? Like it's stuff that like literally nobody cares about, but I'm like fascinating. So Q1 is almost over here for 2022 you've seen that we've kind of like the manufacturers shot their loads with a big uh, flagship sorry for the uh imagery there but you know what i'm saying <laughs> yeah where do you think we're at this year you kind of mentioned earlier you know obviously android 13 is coming but i feel like it's very evolutionary this year yeah but i'm also pretty excited like the phones are great like i have an s22 ultra and it is by all measure better than the s21 ultra um, I'm not a Note user, but of course, the fact that they rolled the Note into it made sense to me. And it's a nicer form factor because of it, I think. The Oppo Find X5 Pro isn't very evolution on, on the previous one, but, you know, this custom ISP thing we're starting to see happen a lot on a lot of high-end phones is really interesting. And 
Let's see what else. We got OnePlus doing very evolutionary thing with OnePlus 10 Pro, same deal. We've got, I don't know. I mean, so far, it seems to me like, you know, you said there are constraints around manufacturing. Obviously, that's slowing down things a little bit in terms of like being too radical. But I also think that we're kind of reach a steady state of happiness. Like, you know, you can buy last year's S21 and be happy this year, and you can buy this year's S22 and be happy this year. You know, does it really make a big difference? Mm, not really, right? No. And I, I think that, again, we're in we're in an interesting stage at the in the smartphone space for Android because where Qualcomm is at, because of where Google is at, and also where Samsung is at. So I think Samsung is starting to really try to evolve into a foldables first smartphone company. That's okay. where they see the margins going, I believe. Yeah. I think that they see the profit potential there. I'm excited to see what they do. I still believe the fold is a kind of not widely applicable form factor, but the flip to me remains something. I think something. the flip is, yeah. Yeah, the flip is something that I think can eventually be very normal for most people once it's truly optimized and the, you know, you get over a lot of the bezel concerns and some more of the thickness, et cetera. But in general, I think that watching Google go through this transition with its Exynos-based Tensor platform um, means that we're going to see probably some baby steps from them for, I would assume, for the next couple of years as they continue to customize and learn building their own smartphone chipset platform. I believe that will lead Google to focus more on how do we use the existing silicon to attach new software features um, and create differentiators in the market using AI. Whereas with Qualcomm, like I said, you have that, I believe Nuvia um, was the company um, that they acquired. Uh, and they are undergoing probably some big architectural changes to their roadmap in the light, in the wake of that acquisition. Now, at the same time, you have a bunch of stuff also happening kind of related to Moore's Law with electric, you know, EUV lithography, which I don't know a ton about, but enough to say that, hey, this is going to this is going to start shaping the way chip evolution like happens for the next five, six, ten years, potentially, um, and how Moore's Law continues to scale. And I think there will be some interesting things to come out of that because we're seeing Again, like you've said, more and more of these heterogeneous processors like that have tons of different yep. like specific functions. And that's just the economy of scale that keeping the shrinking these chips is creating. You have more room. You can put more stuff on there for more specific workloads. And to me, that yeah. is interesting. Now, And you know what? As an aside, you only have to look at the new Mac Studio to see where we're going in mainstream right. desktop or laptop computing. You know, Intel is screwed. They are screwed if they don't get on board anytime soon, in my opinion. They also have to stop being a chip manufacturer and be a system manufacturer. SOCs are the way to go. Qualcomm doesn't sell you a chip. They sell you an entire computer on a chip. And Intel is still kind of relying on the computer manufacturer to be like, well, I, I want to use this motherboard with this SSD. Like, forget all that. It should all be one piece, like what yeah. we're getting now on phones and what Apple's doing with the M1 stuff. And it's it's the future. Like this is to me, it was clear when the M1 came out, but now with the Mac Studio, I'm like, oh yeah, we're here. Yeah. And I think the other thing, uh, you bring up an interesting point with those custom image signal processors, the ISPs. Yeah, what do you think of that? That's kind of puzzling me a little bit. I mean, I can kind of understand why if you have the money and you have the space to do it, but it kind of goes against things that we just talked about, right? In a way. My, my suspicion there is that I have two suspicions. 
One, that there is a silicon vendor in China who has some kind of customization product they offer vendors that um, is seeing some kind of uptake, or that Qualcomm has created a ISP customization program for customers where they can come in and add pieces to the architecture that Qualcomm kind of makes optional, perhaps, um, like if they want to add more memory bandwidth or something like that. I don't really know, but I would I would hazard a guess that there's some kind of partnership happening there. I mean, right now it looks like these are separate chips, like the Mary Silicon X on the Oppo Find X5 Pro is a six nanometer separate chip like that yeah. just replaces the isp functionality of the qualcomm Fascinating. Uh, stack for whatever reason and i believe that honor is doing the same with the uh, upcoming magic for ultimate which we're going to talk about in a minute but i think there's there's more like it's not just uh vivo's done the same on the uh x70 pro plus i, I don't know i think it's kind it of sounds- a trend yeah, it's it sounds to me like there must be a vendor either in Taiwan or China or Korea or something that has a good custom ISP solution out there that they're white labeling. Uh, because that kind of thing doesn't happen by coincidence. It's not monkey see, monkey do. I mean, right. in terms of like, you know, the idea, you know, they're not all coming up with a custom ISP at the same time, just like naturally. I know, it seems <laughs> odd to me that that's a lot of R&D, right? Yeah, I know. But yeah, that's kind of the trends I'm seeing. I think you're right. The The folding thing is interesting. I think if this rumor of a folding pixel phone is true, which I think it is. If the pricing can undercut um, the competition from Samsung in the same way as the pixel has undercut the competition, the pixel six last year and six pro, I think it's going to be interesting because you know, I'm on my pixel six pro now for what, six months or whatever it's been five months. And it's still ticking strong. I have no issues. I mean, I haven't had a lot of the problems people are having with, you know, software updates, borking stuff i don't know why i use this on my daily driver so i feel like it's a very competitive product still today and it's a product that at the time undercut the competition and still to some extent undercuts the competition so i welcome a folding phone from them as well in addition to all the samsung stuff we're going to be getting yeah i i think that you know my pixel 6 pro has been a a phone of highs and i highs and lows for me the thing that actually has disappointed me most is the camera. Um, the processing times and lag in capturing images is atrocious in my experience, and it's only gotten worse over time. Granted, I can't really speak to the experience I'm having now because I'm on the Android 13 preview, um, ah. and I wouldn't want to blame Google for that. But even before I'd switched to the preview build, I was really disappointed with, with the camera's overall speed at capturing things, um, and also like the level of blur it was creating in a lot of shots. So the phone is usable it's interesting because i'm not experiencing any of that like i'm not finding it slow and i'm getting really solid photos from my pixel 6 pro the photos are fantastic when they come out fantastic and i've had some that just don't but you know of course it's down to how you use it your specific kind of expectations about a mobile phone's camera and you know my expectations are high i just think that once again well you also have an iphone 13 so if you tap on the shutter key on that it's like it's instant instant, yeah because apple keeps it in memory no matter what but the the other side of that is actually like i think that the photos taken on my iphone 13 pro max generally i'm less happy with the end product yeah so i still know that the phone the pixel has a great camera 
But at the same time, there are things about it like battery life, general bugginess, um, you know, like I have bugs with charging. Apparently a lot of people have bugs with charging this phone where like, you know, sometimes it charges super slowly on a wireless pad for no reason. Um, you know, there are things that I can just tell as Google has transitioned to quote unquote its own silicon, there have been regressions. And yeah. those regressions really annoy me. Um, and I understand <laughs> that the this is Google, you know, they beta test on their customers, right? And yeah, so, well, you know, that's what you're Tesla. buying. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And that's how I feel about this phone, which gives me very mixed feelings about it. I love the software experience. I love Android 13. The second developer preview is so much more stable so far than the first one and more performant, I would say, too. So right. I've been daily driving it from day one because I'm insane. So uh, and I also have two phones, so I always yeah, have a backup. But of course. Yeah, it's to me, though, Android 13 is going to really change the software on Android phones in a big way that we haven't seen since probably, like, I don't know, Nougat, like Android 7. Um, like, this is a huge visual overhaul. They're changing certain paradigms completely, like notifications are now opt-in on Android. Like, you get an Android 13 phone, every time you open a new app, it's going to ask you, do you want this app to send you notifications? That is a huge change in terms of the way Android behaves. But this is how, and I'm sure you remember, like, when we reviewed Chinese phones, like, 10 years ago, and they yeah. had opt-in notifications, we were like, this is garbage. Who would want that? <laughs> like, just send me the damn notification. Stop asking me. And now we're like, I have so many apps, and they send me so many notifications. And, like, Google's enabled, like, notification history, snoozing notifications like being able to long press on them to figure out where they're coming from and disable them. They're really focusing on notification control now. So yeah. I do think the it's experience too much, for end users. My opinion. <laughs> yeah, it's a little much, but they want to get no, it in front it's, of people. It's not, it's, I like the flexibility. It's just, it's hard to explain to people yeah. how they can, what they can do with notification of either an iPhone or an Android phone. I think iOS is even worse. It is. Oh, by far. The discoverability for notification control on Android to me is infinitely better than iOS 100%. because iOS is non-discoverable. But then you're overwhelmed <laughs> by how what you can do with it. So yeah, like in yeah, a way, it's, I kind of miss you the know, early days. They, there was a good example of that, I think around maybe it was Android 8 or 9 when they introduced a beta feature for notification priority channels. So you could assign a notification a priority one through five. Um, and some power users love that idea, but to me, it was one of those situations where like, okay, you're going to end up with a, with a Microsoft Outlook situation here where everything is highest priority and nobody's going <laughs> to use this in a way yeah. that makes any sense. So yeah. they walked that one back and got rid of it after a while. So you see Google, you know, having to go back and forth about like what level of control to provide, what kind of way to surface it. But in general, I think that you're seeing a shift toward genuinely caring about user privacy because they understand people are starting to pay attention more to this, especially in the media. But in general, people care more. They seem to, you know, Apple has the data now, right? That says, hey, if we give people a choice to not be tracked, they're going to choose that nine times out of 10. And that's a very clear signal and one that you really, you really don't have any retort to, right? Is Google. <laughs> You're just like, well, yeah. that's the data. People say they don't want it. Um, are we going to say that actually people don't know what they want? And I think that's a hard eh, argument not. for Google yeah. to make. Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel personally um, that, you know, I think I'm looking forward to what, you know, Android 13 is bringing to the table. I'm happy with my Pixel. Um, but I'm not super picky. It does everything I want it to. It very rarely lets me down. And um, I, in terms of 
delivering a flagship experience compared to previous pixels. I feel I'm getting that. Um, I use an S22 Ultra and previously an S21 Ultra for most of my car photography because the ultra wide is wider on the Samsung uh -huh. and also I get more zoom options. And I have to say, I am very, very impressed with imaging on Samsung phones in the last couple of years. I use iPhones for video and that's kind of where I'm at. And I love the Chinese phones. I think that, I honestly think that the color uh, science on the Oppo Find X5 Pro is absolutely outstanding and it has nothing to do with Hasselblad even though it's blended that. It, I feel like Oppo has always had something really special and with this new ISP and maybe maybe the Hasselblad partnership, it's gotten even nicer. And generally speaking, I want to kind of say, and I'll, I'll link to an article by The Verge that, you know, we didn't talk about this in my recap of, of MWC, but man... It was a sea of Chinese phones. There was nothing else. Like, it, you know, you're going to say, well, a lot of the phones are from China. But like Samsung, you know, didn't even try to show anything. Like, they just launched the A53 and A33 this past week. They, they just showed a bunch of laptops at MWC, which is just so weird. Like, it seems to me like the Chinese are just still owning the market. Well, I think there's also still enough demand growth in China, especially with well, I, not I wonder, just China, Europe too, right? right? Just because you don't see the phones in the US doesn't mean that the rest of the world isn't. Certain, certainly. And part of that is also, I was going to say, is a Huawei's downfall um, with right. GMS. And so there is a there's a huge market to be to be attached to now um, that Huawei really is struggling to sell into. So there's there's a huge competitive pressure uh, competitive pressure being made there. So the uh, A53 5G is coming to the US. The 33 is Europe only right now for whatever reason or rest of the world only. Uh, $450, you're getting AMOLED, 120 hertz, 1080p, 6.5 inches. You're getting uh, water resistance. You're losing the headphone jack. You are getting 5G. You're getting an Exynos processor, I think, which is like uh, making me scratch my head and worry. I mean, I am using a Pixel, so I shouldn't say that. And what else? You're getting 5,000 milliamp hour battery, 6 gigs of RAM, 120 gigs of storage, micro SD support, nice. You get a 64 megapixel main camera. I'm not sure it has OIS, but I don't think so. And ultra wide and a depth sensor and a macro, like it's overkill. But I mean, look, this is a, this is a bread and butter phone for Samsung. So it seems like an evolution and I, I'm, I'm with it. It's fine. It's going to be good. It's not what I want, but whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that's for Samsung news. Uh, let's talk about the throttling real quick. I don't really care. Like people, it's like when Apple was throttling the battery on the phones, like you remember they were throttling the performance so that the battery, when your right. battery was a little older and it was struggling to keep up with peak current draw, they would limit the performance of the apps a little bit. I'm like, what do you expect? Your phone battery needs to be replaced. So yeah, would you want your phone to restart randomly? No, you want your phone to run. So you're going to throttle. Big deal. Now, of course, disclosing that would have been smart. I think Samsung is in the same boat. They want to optimize the experience. And, you know, the Chinese phone makers do the same thing, right? Call, killing apps in the background, right? Um, in a way, this Samsung thing is the same. And, and now, now they've like, you know, Mia culpa it and issued a, an update to the S22 series for it. And, but I don't think there's any throng per se of throttling performance on the apps to get battery life and everything to be balanced out as long as it's not a massive change. And in my experience reviewing the S22 for hot hardware, I didn't notice it to be 
any issue. So, you know, the CEO is apologizing now. What's your take on all this? I mean, my take is it's bad engineering. <laughs> and that that's yeah. really why it, it's kind of an affront and insulting to customers, because it just shows that Samsung doesn't know how to optimize their damn phone the right way. Like, this is something that you should be solving on basically the job scheduler or battery optimization level. And Android offers you configurability there. So and they're the not doing that. Yeah. Yeah. The job scheduler, you know, they could be working with Qualcomm, they could be working with Google to better optimize that such that, you know, their performance, you know, for certain workloads isn't going to cause the processor to basically hit throttle, um, thermal throttle, which I assume is what they're trying to avoid here. That is my guess, is that what is happening is they know certain applications that have these high workloads pressures, especially continuous workload, um, which are the apps I think you're going to see most effective, are likely to run into the thermal throttling point on the chip. So in my benchmarks, it was throttling down to 50% after five minutes. And, you know, it's bad. And I said that in my review, but I'm like, ultimately... Does it matter unless you're playing games? I don't think so. I mean, so the the use case where this does come up and is truly a real life one is if you, you know, are navigating with the phone in your car and you have it on a mount up in the oh, windshield. Oh, that's a good point. It yeah. will just, that is where you will encounter huge throttling problems. It doesn't matter what it is. Now, the other side of this is that Samsung, you know, in the ever increasing quest for thinness, sleekness, packing everything in as tight as humanly possible, these phones just aren't very good at dissipating heat quickly. That is True. a big part of the problem. That's why you buy gaming phones. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think that there will come a point where, you know, phone manufacturers have to reckon with this because look at the iPhone. It is a chonky, chonky phone. Um, but I can't think of a single time that my iPhone's ever had the throttle for any reason. You know, it stays fast. No pretty reliably. And I think a big part of that is Apple has built a very, very good design in terms of heat dissipation, whereas Samsung, Google, most of these other Android manufacturers are still stuck in this very, very tight kind of desire to get the glass sandwich, very curvy, very sleek, um, something that is going to really look nice in a case, which is great. But again, I think we're just kind of, we're running into walls where we shouldn't be. Um, because Samsung should have solved this at a different point. They should have seen this earlier on. This feels like a Band-Aid and one that was not well done. Yeah, I think they started designing this kind of based on the SD888, the the previous chip, and then they were stuck with a chip that needed more thermals and they couldn't design that. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I reviewed the Red Magic 7. It's a gaming phone. It has a fan built in, but with the fan disabled, I was still getting 96% after 20 minutes. Yeah, and that just comes so, down to they probably have know, a much bigger so passive heat pipe. cooling was definitely taken care of in that, and I was getting ninety eight percent with the fan on. Yeah, so yeah, so it's clear you, know, you can design around this. This is no, not you some, can. You yeah, can. I, I think not, yeah. yeah, it's just you know for Samsung they are so obsessed with the dimensions. I think that they. They really get lost. I mean, we saw that with Note 7, right? This is not the first time oh, that Samsung has, has really like you know shown that like we're really pushing the limits of how small we can make the damn thing. That's it. I'm not getting any more phones from Samsung for the rest of the year because <laughs> I mentioned the Note 7 in my podcast. Thanks, David. Sorry. That's <laughs> uh, okay. They don't like me anyway. So um, here's the thing. Speaking of magic of engineering um, thermals, I want to bring this up before we wrap up. The Honor Magic 4 Ultimate, I just touched on it earlier when we were at mwc honor was like look we, we're going to make an s22 competitor and they came out with the honor magic 4 and 4 pro which are really impressive phones honestly and this magic 4 ultimate 
just got added to the pie and that thing is just even more bonkers. So the 4 Pro had this, it's, it's all about camera systems, but the 4 Pro had a 50 megapixel main f1.8, a big sensor, and then 50 megapixel ultra wide, and then a 64 megapixel telephoto with a 3.5x optical zoom folded lens, kind of similar to what the Pixel 6 Pro has, you know, where there's a big sensor, so they have to put a folded lens even though the zoom, the optical is not that strong. And, and you know, the photos we took with it were really impressive. It's, it's you know, it's got all the legacy Huawei image processing and they inherited and it's really nice. So then they decide, hey, let's crank it up a notch and this thing has a 50 megapixel sensor that's even bigger physically, so it's a 1 over 1.2 inch sensor and Custom ISP again, here we go. They've bumped the ultra-wide to 64 megapixel and they're keeping the 64 megapixel crazy telephoto 3.5X periscope. Right. And so, you know, it's crazy and it's bonkers and it's expensive and it's nice and it's got the rest, the rest of the specs are pretty much the same. It did lose the 100 watt wireless charging for 50 watt wireless charging because the 4 Pro had 100 watt on both wired and wireless because why not? But this doesn't. And I think it's because of the shape of the rear, which is a ceramic back similar huh. to the uh, Oppo Find X5 Pro where it's kind of building the camera pod into the ceramic back and because of that it's not flat so I don't think they could go maximum wireless charging power um, it looks incredible it got the best DxO mark rating so far and whatever oh f over 1.6 on that 50 megapixel big sensor which is very impressive but that's why the camera bump is so big and they had to kind of create this little ramp on the back of the ceramic back of it and, you know, it's expensive, I'm sure. It can't be cheap. Let me see. Pricing, pricing. Do we have pricing? $1,300? €1,200? Mm, okay. Tasty. Yeah, I mean, that sounds about I mean, right. I like how Honor is playing in the Huawei space, you know? Like well, they they're have replacing. to. <laughs> yeah, and they're smart about it, right? That, that's they have to, as you said. So I think it's it's interesting to see the bigger sensors continuing to proliferate, but... We're we're starting to hit the the limits of physics here. Um, yeah, you know, unless you want to make the phone like an inch thick. So I mean, that thing is chunky looking compared. I, I handled the four Pro, and this thing, I'm just looking at this back of it. I'm just like, whoa. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm curious to see. You know, the I mean, obviously, we want to get as much sensor in there as we can, and they're going to continue to improve on the margins to get it a little thinner, get the lens a little bigger, keep the aperture a little less distorted, but at a certain point. It's it's light. You're bending light. You can only do that in so many ways, and it's so many dimensional possibilities in the form factor of a smartphone, right? The to me, I still think that even if it looks like Google may not be having a quantum leap in advancement in image processing with Pixel 6 Pro over Pixel 5, um, they're still doing the most interesting stuff there because yeah. they're on the limit of what the hardware can accomplish and moving into, all right, how can we double down on the software component? Not to say that other companies like Oppo and um, Honor aren't doing interesting things. I think it's more that in terms of end user experience, uh, the kinds of things Google and to an extent Samsung are doing are more impactful. Um, yeah. And obviously you see Apple really owning that experience because of the video experience they have on their phones. Um, you know, 
being great at pictures is good. Being great at moving pictures is better. It's much harder. Co- yeah. Yeah. And I think that in general, you know, everybody clamors like, oh, Google should use a huge sensor on the pixel. The photos would be so much better. Um, you know, you don't really realize the amount of Yeah, there's tuning. some trade-offs. Right? There are. There are trade-offs in terms of like color reproduction, in terms of like visual distortion that starts happening with some of these oh, yeah. really big sensors. Oh, yeah. Lens flaring, which Google already has to contend with a lot um, because of the way it processes photos. People complain about lens flaring on every pixel, no matter what. Granted, they complain yeah. about it on every Samsung phone too. But again, but that's HDR a, Plus does that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a consequence of putting these big sensors really close to a tiny lens in a very thin smartphone. And yeah. working around that is the much bigger challenge than just trying to make the sensor bigger. It's yeah. much more impactful. And I think that in general, what I'm looking forward to in Android is a future where the phones can simultaneously leverage multiple sensors to create a better overall image. We're not so there So this is yet. actually what's kind of starting to happen. And I just want to point that out since you're just talking about the Find X5 Pro. This is why I think they have the custom ISP. It does sensor fusion. Okay. And and the Pixel 6 does sensor fusion. Pixel has done that for yes. a while now. Huawei did it on the Kirin chipsets uh, with the P40 Pro and Pro Plus and the Mate 40 Pro and Pro Plus. And and guess what? Honor's doing it here as well on the not just the Ultimate, but the 4 Pro and the 4. So... I think that whether they're using Qualcomm or custom ISP, sensor fusion is becoming a real thing. Um, the thing is interesting about the, you mentioned video, the Find X5 Pro's claim to fame of having a separate ISP is for low light video and it's killer. Like huh. I have never seen a phone capture low light video as good. It's it's really impressive. Um, now, I mean, is it better than the iPhone for low light video? Yes. Is it better than the iPhone and daylight video? No. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's very good, but the iPhone still has, I don't know, there's something about the iPhone. And I think a lot of it is about the consistency of the frame rate. It is, know? 100%. You get that. It's not just dropping frames. It's the jitter, right? Yes. Like there is just something like it's rock solid. Like you can time the universe after that. It's to me, it's almost the difference if you, you know, in the photography world between using mechanical shutter and electronic shutter. Exactly. Um, It is that level of smoothness on the iPhone where you just know, like, I expect the same thing every time I use it and it works the same way every time you use it. And that I know that like, you know, you see Artem on Twitter all the time complaining about his pixel and the, the results of like videos of his kids and stuff. Um, Artem Rusakowski uh, founded Android police. Um, if you don't know who I'm talking oh, about, yeah. but um, you know, his complaints about pixel phones are legendary and that has always been one in about all Android phones that the, the lag starting video, stopping video, random frame drops and stutters and no manufacturer seems to be able to get a grip on this just buy an iphone artem come on <laughs> i sent him one so he's got one <laughs> there you go a couple of things i want to wrap up with number one if you've ever wondered what happens when you insert accidentally the sim removal tool and the microphone hole especially on those phones where it's next to each other i'm thinking a lot of oneplus phones and a lot of samsung phones and guess what zach at jerry everything showed us by, you know, basically taking apart phones that it's a non-issue. It's been engineered to uh, prevent that. So basically, you don't have to worry about it. I'll let you watch the video. I'll put it in the show notes. It's very clever. 
Uh, as an engineer, I was very impressed because I've done it and I've cringed many times. Yeah. I've never noticed any issues, but I always thought the water resistance for sure was gone. And it's not. Even that is preserved. So I don't think it's every phone, but a lot of phones, especially if you're a flagship that's any recent, like two, three years old, uh, you'll be fine. So that's good news. The other good news is Google I.O. is happening, of course, um, but this time it's a kind of uh, an interesting because it's uh, both virtual for anyone for free, but also uh, there's going to be a limited number of in-person people there. It's unclear as to whom, um, whether media will get invited. I haven't heard of any media getting invited yet um, or developers or folks the like The official you, word um, is that Google will only be inviting partners. So, uh, ah, so that you means, guys? No, <laughs> we're not an Android partner. Um, <laughs> no, so, uh, or a Google partner per se. So, I mean, you'll see like you know probably bigwigs from like Samsung and you know the phone manufacturers and probably Microsoft. You know anybody who's a big Google customer for certain services. So that makes sense. It's it's truly you know probably going to be an executive level audience, and that to me is interesting because if they can accommodate partner executives, they can make a little space available with craft services and some tables and chairs for journalists. It's not that hard, folks. Um, it feels a little opportunistic not to invite journalists. But they don't like us. Yeah, it's, a, it's I mean, an interesting dynamic. I mean, I'm not blanket statementing this because I know some folks at Google that are awesome, the PR team there, yeah. generally have a very good relationship with Google PR, even though sometimes they, they, they shuffle the deck around a lot. And sometimes you kind of let gets lost in the shuffle when you're, a, you know, like a, not a top tier publication like I am. But at the same time, I understand where they're coming from. That's how they do things. So I have no qualms with them, unlike others. But I do wish they would invite us because they do seem to have a bit more of an antagonistic approach to journalist PR relationships than you know, say OnePlus does, for example. So, you know, anyway, we'll see. Dave, do you want to tell folks where they can find you on the internet, what your handles are and social media and whatever other content you're creating out there? Yeah, absolutely. And since I'm on a podcast, I, I think I'll plug our podcast. It's called Yay. Android Bytes with a Y. So Bytes with a Y. Um, I and myself and uh, Michelle Rahman. So if you know Michelle, um, he's one of the, if not the foremost Android kind of journalist investigator on the planet. Um, you know, so we host a podcast every week where we have somebody from the Android world on. And we're talking about people who often have never been on a podcast before, uh, who come from the enthusiast developer and tinkerer and customization communities, and also professional kind of Android personalities. So we had a developer on from Graphene OS, uh, which is a highly secure version of Android designed for like high sensitivity devices where data needs to be cool. super tightly controlled. We've had people on um, from Snap Automotive, who are a consultancy that helped build Android automotive solutions for automakers. Uh, that are customized to their liking because Android Automotive is open source. We've had somebody on from CIS Mobile who do uh, handset consulting customization on Android for the government. So, and we talk about interesting things in light of that. Like, how do you build a secure version of Android? How do you think about like updating an Android device? Whose responsibility is it at the end of the day for an Android phone to get an OTA update? What pieces are all of the players there responsible for? So it's Android Bytes, again, with a Y. Um, we're on every week. You can find us on every podcast platform. The show does not have advertisements except for us. So um, it's a really interesting read. And honestly, like we ended up on r slash Android the other day with an episode uh, because people really Ooh. liked it. So I was like, oh, that's awesome. So yeah, check us out. Right on. 
Great. And where can folks find you on social media? Uh, RDRV3 on Twitter. That is really the only place I am. Otherwise, you can find me at blog.esper.io. That is the official Esper blog where I am the editor-in-chief. Ta-da! So there you go, folks. And yeah, keep an eye on what David's up to and his team. It's good stuff. You know where to find me on the internet, folks. I'm at Tankerl on Twitter and Instagram. You should follow me there. If you want to chat about this podcast with me and David, we're both on Twitter, so do that. If you want to see pretty pictures of phones, pretty pictures of cars, all of them taken with phones, go to my Instagram. I'm starting to do reels. God save me. (laughs) But... (laughs) Yeah. But uh, speaking of video, I also have two YouTube channels you should subscribe to youtube.com slash mobile tech podcast and youtube.com slash mobile tech more. The first one is all the phone stuff and mostly audio and smartwatches like immediate peripherals to the phone, which I really think are valuable. And then I've been putting some car stuff there because, you know, the second channel is pretty small and and I want some visibility. So my ID buzz is on the main channel as well as mobile tech more, which is the channel where you'll find travel tech, car tech, your home automation tech, and all the non-direct smartphone ecosystem stuff. So check out both channels. You know how YouTube works. Like, subscribe, tell your friends, click the little notification icon. You know the drill. I don't have to tell you how to do that. The podcast lives at mobiletechpodcast.com. We're on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, everywhere good podcasts can be found. Please, if your app lets you do it. Rate the show, review the show, tell the world all that good stuff. If you like RSS feeds, there's even one at that URL. If you want to be old school, yeah. There is a Patreon. If you want to watch this on video with me and David, Patreon is where you're going to find a video version of this podcast. Less edited, it launches and is released before the audio public version. So before Saturday, you'll get something. If you're a patron, there's a tier for that. There's a tier for a Discord server you can join to chat with me. It's a bonanza. You should check it out. It's cool. And this is how you can support me directly because you know what? I can't do this without your help. So please help. I would appreciate it. Check out Patreon. I want to thank my existing patrons for being awesome. And hopefully we'll see more of you there soon. If you don't like Patreon and you want to help, there's another way. There's a PayPal link in the show notes. You can buy me a coffee, click on there or something. Buy me lunch, whatever it might be. I'd appreciate it. Check the show notes for that. And of course, I want to thank our sponsor, Audible. Audible's been with us since the very early days of the show. And they're one of our main sponsors. We really love them. I love books, but, you know, I'm in front of a computer screen all day and my eyes get tired because I'm getting old. And, you know, I like to just sit back and listen to a book being read to me. And it's not just books. There's like some shorter content, short story stuff. There's podcasts. They have a ton of books read by the authors. A huge selection of content. You know, Audible is really audiobook central. That's what they're about. And if you want to help them, you can help us by helping them, etc. Through this link I'm going to give you, there's a 30-day free trial and you get uh, to keep a book at the end, whether you stay or not. Audibletrial.com slash mobile tech is the URL. That's audibletrial.com slash mobile tech. I want to thank... Audible for being awesome and being with us since the early days. Check it out, folks. I think you'll love it. And thanks, David, for being my guest on the show yet again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Well, we'll definitely have you on again at some point and check in on the state of smartphones and EVs at some point in the future. So stay tuned for that, folks. Obviously, we'll have another show next week as well. So I'll see you then. Cheers, everybody. 
This has been the Mobile Tech Podcast with Tank Girl, proudly presented by worldpodcasts.com. You can visit us online at mobiletechpodcast.com.